All right, well then, good evening. <clears throat> We're starting, it's about 6.05 tonight. We're getting started on Gideon, which is in Judges 6 through 8. This was a question that was brought up by uh, Brother Travis. I'd asked the other day, what would, they, what would you like to study? And he said, how about the life and times of Gideon? The last time we did a judge, we did Samuel. So we're, if we wanted to, um, I'm sorry, Samson, we could do all the judges because it's really, the book of Judges is an amazing book. Um, I learned a lot myself that I did not even know about a lot of things. But where it starts out is the, the idea of the book of Judges, which to me, when I look at the full, the whole of the Old Testament and the New, is you see this. You see the, the children of Israel at the top. It says apostasy, bondage, crying out, deliverance, and ease. There's four things that you, there's, there's five things, the A, B, C, D, and E. They call, this is not my original thought. This is what they call the ABCs. It's the ABCs of judges. Okay. It's the, the spiral, the way that this works out each time. And as we go through this, you'll see that's how it looks. So the first thing that we see is there's an apostasy. They, they make a pledge they're going to serve God, right? And then they apostatize, which means they turn away from what they once said they were. Then there's bondage. They're brought into bondage. Who always brings them into bondage? God does. God sends a people to put them in bondage. Then what do we see? The same thing that we find ourselves. We cry out to God because that's exactly what it says. We cry out to him. He hears our, our prayer and he helps in our time of need. So then they're delivered. And usually with this in the earlier, we see that it's through a prophet. Then we see later it's through these judges, and then later we see kings, and then there's a progression. Then we finally see finally is what? Our Savior. We're delivered, and we are truly delivered. He who is set free is free indeed. It's not like it was before. There's no, nothing to hinder us now except for ourselves. Then there's a time of ease, and that's what we're going to see in this. There's a time where things are good, but then what happens? Through that good time, through that complacency, and that's the problem we all have in our lives even now, we get complacent because things are going great. And before you know it, you backslide. You get away from what you know is right because everything's going fine. And then the next thing you find, you find yourself again right back in this cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And the whole book of Judges, that's what's happening over and over and over. So just a little bit of... Um, Just a little bit of backstory. Um, we're going to go back to Moses, and I know that's a long ways, but we got to go all the way back to Moses. We got to go all the way back to the time of Moses. Moses led them out of, led them to the point where they were to go into the promised land, correct? But then God said, You cannot go in. He had already killed his brother Aaron. Okay, so he told Moses, you're not, you're not going to be allowed to go in. So Moses, it says the Lord buried Moses while there was still a gleam in his eye. He still was could have lived life. The Lord took his life, buried him. Great. Then who did he leave? Do you guys remember who it was that he left to lead them into? Do y'all remember? Joshua. So he told Joshua, Moses gives Joshua the instructions as to what they're to do now. He says, look, I'm, I'm going away. I. I'm not going to be here. So Moses gives his last and final instructions to the people, and then he's taken away. So they, they've made it in. This is it. We're the first part on our guide here. Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, but they did not do as God commanded. They did not utterly destroy and drive the Canaanites from the land. Judges chapter 1, 27 through 36. You're going to see all the peoples. Guys, this is the thing. When the Lord says to stop something, when the Lord says to do something, when the word of God in Romans says to do what? To, to cast aside every, every sin that so easily besets you. There's a purpose behind that because he realizes all it takes is what? A little leaven to leaven at the lump. So let's go to 1 in 27 of Judges. We're just going to start there. These are the places not conquered. What did God tell Moses to tell Joshua what's the last thing that they were supposed to do. They were supposed to utterly destroy them and drive them out of the land. Do not let them stay. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo or its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. 
but they did not drive them out completely. So first of all, they're using them as a workforce, as slaves. God did not tell them to do that. They've defied God's word. I'm not going to read it to the end, but every other verse in here goes about another person that's over another part. And guess what they did not do? Exactly what God told them. They did not utterly drive them out. So how did they get into this cycle? They got into this cycle because they didn't obey God. And we always come back to that in every teaching that we have. This is all about obedience. When we talked about Samson, he could have been a great man, but he, he did not love God. Samson loved Samson. Samson loved women. Samson loved a lot of things, but God was not in those things. Okay, The same thing that we find here in this instance. The people did not love the Lord. They loved what was around them. And the whole reason that he had told them to get rid of them was because what if you don't, you are going to worship the gods of the Canaanites. That's just a reality. And that's what they find themselves doing. So therefore, they eventually worship the gods of the Canaanites. And then we find ourselves where we are now. The last thing in Joshua, I'll read to you guys 24, 14 through 28. <clears throat> they kind of sealed their own fate because they said, we will serve the Lord. Okay, so they said in, in verse 14, Joshua 24 and 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who knows that one by heart? Okay, but do we know the context of it? We're about to find it. And this is where there's a real breakdown. There's a disconnect with people. They love to quote that, but they don't even understand where it came from. There's more to living in your house, living for the Lord and worshiping and doing than just saying it out of your mouth. In 16, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now, this is out of their own mouths. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all people through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. This is where the, the commitment comes in. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. He told them the truth, did he not? That's the problem that we have today too. People would rather not tell you the truth so that when you find yourself in peril, you find yourself in a bad place and you wonder why. These individuals know why. Each time they cry out to God and judges, they know why they're where they are. And that's the only reason they cry out because they know there's only one true deliverer, just as we do. We know there's only one who can change the circumstances that we're in. Then he says, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourself the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and will obey his voice. There's no need to even read any more of that. What did they not do? He actually told them, you bring this judgment upon yourself. Just as we see Paul and Barnabas in Acts, they waxed boldly and said, look, you have judged yourselves unworthy of this gift, that gift being salvation through Christ Jesus. Same thing here. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we can go there. Today I put before you blessings and curse, life and death. This is seamless through the whole of the old and the new. There's always a choice. Kill all of the ites, and they did not do it. Exactly. Instead, what they did was, and that, that's a that is a um, a very selfish reason not to kill them. Because what did they use them as? They used them as slaves. The Israelites are using a people as a slave whenever they were delivered from bondage by God. Uh, do you see the? Yeah. Do you see the parallel there? How ignorant that is. Yeah, we're going to do the same thing that our captors did to us. So their heart was turned completely from God. So what does the Bible say about 
Let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. Yeah, but how, how important is it? I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Oh, yes. If you make a covenant, don't promise something you can't fulfill. Exactly. That's exactly what they did. At yep. Joshua. They promised. They made a covenant amongst themselves. They were witnesses to themselves mm -hmm. that we're going to serve God. And almost immediately, they did not. They, they turned from the Lord. Yeah. Which, that's the pattern that we see repeated. But that's the thing. is God, tells, God says, be careful how you promise things or how you make oaths. Because... If you make an oath to God, He's going to uphold His, his, his end. Yes. His end. That's it. And that's exactly what we're about to do. Yeah. He upheld that end of that covenant. If you serve me good, if not, I'm going to consume. Yep. You will be punished yeah. over and over. So, in in the book, um, we see there's there's six judges, main judges. There's twelve judges total, but I have them in bold. There's there's six that were. In judges that are have a, a lengthy story, there's some accounts where it's only one thing about one judge. Now these judges is one thing I never understood. Whenever I thought of a judge before, although I've read it, I never took it to account. We think of a judge as an individual who sits on a bench and makes a decision. These judges were not like that. These people were judges. They were the judgment of God on a people. They were like political um, members of a tribe. It was like a tribal society and they were the one over the tribe that ran it. As a matter of fact, whenever you get after Gideon, the next judge was actually just a gang leader. He literally was a gang leader and the Lord used him, but he was a horrible person. He did horrible things, the atrocities. He served Canaanite gods and even said he would sacrifice his child. This is God's using him as a judge and he said, I will sacrifice my child to the God of Israel. He didn't know who God was. He didn't even serve God. God rose these judges up as a judgment on the people. So that doesn't even mean that they had knowledge of who God was. God can use any instrument that he wants to. The last thing that we see in chapter uh, 5 of Judges in 31, this is Deborah, the account of Deborah. In 5 and 31, this is what we hear. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. So this is this cycle we see. Deborah was a good judge. The things that she did led to the deliverance of the people in 40 years of ease. But during that 40 years of ease, we find ourselves back here. Israel is now oppressed by Midian, the Canaanites. And we're not going to read it verse for verse. We're going to talk about it. Um, it says in here, I will read this. The, the the farther you get through the book of Judges, the worse the judge is. As you read the accounts and the understanding, the worst judge of all judges was Samson. That's the way the accounts go. As you start from the beginning, it goes from good to bad to worst. And then the ones that are after that, the two of these small ones, El Elon and Abdon, they were butchers. The things that happened, the atrocities were horrible. I mean, to be able to read this and not envision it and go, wow, I can't believe those things happened, it's really amazing, the horrible things that happened. But God is the one who placed that judgment on a people. So we have to always keep that in, in, in mind. In the very beginning, I'm just going to start and read a few verses in chapter 6, starting from 1. 1 through 6 talks about Israel being oppressed. So then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midians seven years. They did what was wrong. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Then it says, The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and destroy the, I'm sorry, and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. <clears throat> Y'all, there's nothing. And it, it starts to talk about how many cattle they had and the things they had, and it was like sand. So every time they have overthrown them, they're not even living in their homes anymore. They are living in caves they have taken to go into the caves and places like that because they're not safe in their own towns. Because what happens? It's just like the dark ages. Everything's fine one day and then you're pillaged. So the best thing to do is, especially when you get near harvest time, do not be in town. 
That's why when we find Gideon, where we find him, there's a reason for that. Because they know at the right time. You notice how they're gathering up? The time of the year that they gather is the time that they know what. There's something that they can take from them. They're not bothering them in the meantime. They're bothering them because they're taking the sustenance they have, the things they've grown, any of their young, whatever cattle and stuff they had that are born. They know when that stuff's going to be weaned, and they come in and they take it. So then we have is in, in verse 7, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and disposed them, dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. The prophet is not named. If anybody tells you who the prophet is, they're wrong. They say it might be Phineas. Phineas would have been 200 and something years old. No prophet matches this. The best they can come up with is that God raised up a prophet for this one in this one instance. Because this prophet, whoever it is, if he had been a prophet, there's no prophet that's mentioned that's not mentioned by name. This prophet. This prophet right here with the exception of what we just learned in about John the Baptist, right? About the prophecy of his. That's two instances that we can find in the Bible, which is pretty amazing because we're learning one in Sunday school and the others in here. It's two instances where it says the prophets are a prophet and there's no name. It wasn't relevant to the story. It didn't change anything. So finally Gideon is visited in verse 11. The people have cried out. Now, then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abezerite, as his, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. <clears throat> the winepress is huge. Throw the grapes on the top. There's, there's grapes. You step on them. And what happens? What comes out the bottom? Juice. They still do that overseas in places. They literally still stomp the grapes with their feet. Not a big deal. You clean your feet real good, you're going to be all right. Also, it's wine and it ferments. It's going to be okay. So there's worse things than feet wine, I can assure you. Um, at least you don't get sick. That's the main thing. There was no, if you had that, the, one of the reasons we've talked about this, they needed something that was potable, that they could drink. Water, you couldn't just go get water from anywhere. If there was not a well there, you needed wine. You needed something that had fermented to a certain point that was sterile. It made it sterile. Okay, so wow, wow. <clears throat> so then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, "The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior." Then Gideon said to him, "O my Lord, if the, if the Lord is with us, why then all this has happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt?" But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midians. Here's the thing. What did the angel of the Lord call him? We've all seen that. This is a reality. God sees you for who you truly are. You do not see yourself for who you are even now. I wish that we could see ourselves the way God did and not be prideful. The love he has for us, the life that he's laid out from us, the reality that he has for you and I is way different than the one that we see. Honestly, and this is the same. Gideon's a coward. He's a smart coward, but he's not he's not going to stand up there and press and do what he's doing with this wheat in front of everybody so they can come and steal it from him. He's trying to what he's trying to feed his family. Does that make sense to you guys? I mean, I would have done the same thing. I'm not going to lie. If someone gave me a bushel of potatoes and they said, you can have these potatoes and I needed to peel them, I would hide if they were going to take them. I would go find a place and hide. He's doing nothing different. They call him a coward. I say he was pretty smart, right? But the angel of the Lord saw something in him that he had not seen in himself yet. So the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign 
that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and I lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. So here's another thing. Um, I go back to thinking about in Samuel, whenever Saul's chosen, what did Saul say? Why me? I'm of the smallest tribe and I'm of the least family. That's exactly what Gideon just said. Why would you choose me? But that's exactly why. Because you are the least and the lowest of the low. So when I do a work, it won't be because of you. That's the great thing about it. First Corinthians tells us that. What did God chose? The foolish and the base things. In, in other words, he chose you because you're ignorant. I am perfectly okay with that. Because the knowledge that I had before salvation was, was pretty much all wrong. I thought wrong. I did wrong. Everything was wrong. Now I have a newness of mind and a new knowledge. And the knowledge I have now lets me practice it with wisdom. That's a big deal. Like before, I didn't have any wisdom. I had a bunch of knowledge, but how to use that knowledge, that's wisdom. Brother Gene, in the very beginning, I always go back to this, but I have to, is he told me on several occasions, sometimes you don't need to talk so much. It's, and it's not, not in a mean way, but it's just the truth. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to use your knowledge. Wisdom is knowing when to speak. I, had to I told a kid that today. There was a kid who I was doing something on the board, and she said, wait. And I said, okay, because she never speaks, ever. And one of the kids said, well, so if she says it, what if I'd have said it? I said, I probably wouldn't have because I know you've been talking the whole time. If that student spoke up for the first time in weeks, there's a reason that she spoke. I listened to that. That's the same way it is for us. A person who has something to say about everything all the time, they're all the time talking, are they not? But when that other person speaks up, people have a tendency to listen. They don't have a lot to say, but you know when they say things, it's, a lot of times it's pretty wise. It makes sense. So we're not, I say again, I won't say this again, but we're not going to read every single thing. But what Gideon does is he goes back and he, he slays an animal. He bakes unleavened bread. He cooks it all. He has the, the I must say what you would call it. I would, we would call it gravy off of when he cooked it down and he brings that back. When he gets back, the angel says, tells him to put it on a rock. Put the meat on the rock, pour that over the rock, put the leavened bread on the rock. Angel reaches out with the staff, touches it, it's consumed with fire. Okay, So that's where we find ourselves now. And then he tells him, so then he builds an altar in 26. He tells him, and, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to this day, he did it by night. What had just happened? Asherah. I'm going to tell you, that is the Canaanite goddess. She was the equivalent. She was the equivalent of God's wife in their. She was the goddess of fertility, but she would have been Baal's wife. Okay. So what happens after he does what he does, after he does this, just as the angel tells him, he tells him to go and to tear down the altars of Baal. He says, and once you've torn down the altars of Baal, what I need you to do is build an altar, and then I need you to sacrifice just like what you did. I need you to go sacrifice on it. Well, again, understandably, bless his heart, I probably wouldn't have went and done it during the daylight either. So what he does is he it says he gets ten men of his household that he trusts, and by night, what do they go and do? They go and tear the altar down. They're obedient, right? They're obedient. They do it. Okay. So then in verse 28, he says, When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which he had built. This Asherah was a wooden pole that was beside it. It was that goddess. She was Phoenician, which is Canaanite, but that's the Phoenicians is who we're talking about if you're talking historically. We call them Canaanites because that's the Bible. But that was the Phoenician people. So that was their goddess. They created this and set it in the ground like a totem pole for Native Americans. But it was for them. And it was her on there. So they cut that down. And that's what they used as the wood to burn the sacrifice. Was the image of the, the female version of God. God's wife, Baal's wife. They used her image to sacrifice to the living God. That's like a really big slap in the face. All right? So they're, of course, they're super angry. 
So they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son so that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. But his dad, not wanting to do that, basically says this. He says, I'll tell you what, if that is the reality, I'm pretty sure he didn't even take up for his son and say, Probably, no, he didn't do it. He's like, I'll tell you what, if, if he did that and Baal is a god, then let Baal take care of it. Okay, so now I'm thinking back to Elijah with right on the mountain. I'll tell you what, if, if your God is a God, that like you say it is, then let him do what my God can do. So he kind of threw it at him. He said, okay, that's fine. My son did it. If, if Baal is truly who Baal says he is, if he's as powerful as he is, let him deal with my son accordingly. So his father didn't really throw him under the bus, but he didn't, didn't help. That's using the knowledge he had wisely. That's exactly, because now, now nobody's... Nobody is slain that day. How about that? It's kind of like reasoning with Lot, reasoning with them when the angels, the, the bad, came into, right? So then we have in 36, the sign of the fleece. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And this is what we know mostly about Gideon, guys, is this instance right here. But there's a lot more to it. But this is what most of us know in our mind. And it was so when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. How much ever, however big that was. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on the ground. God did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on all the ground. So I want you to notice the patience of the angel of the Lord, the theophany of God. Just notice the patience of God. When he first appears to him and calls him a mighty man, when he says all these things to him, his instinct is, let me go and do this. Please wait. Now, this is the angel of the Lord. In the account, he realizes whenever that happens that he was in the presence of God and he thinks he's about to die. Right? You, you stop thinking about that. When he touched that and, and it was consumed, he knew then what had just happened because the angel left then. So that thought is running through his mind. Wow. But now this is two more tests. So he asked for one and then... I like the way that he said it. Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. I mean, exactly. I saw what happened the last time, but but we've talked about this several times. I don't think, I'm not going to say that the man's wrong. He wanted to know for sure, right? And he and if it had displeased God, what would God have done? That's why we can go to God and ask him questions. That's one of the things that you learn throughout this is. Even a man who is not, doesn't understand who he is, his place in this, that he's what he's going to do. Still yet, God uses him. And God is trying to show him, he, just as he is us, he's trying to show you yourself all alone. But we have a tendency not to want to look to self. He, he's worried about a bunch of other things and not that. He wants a sign. How about you just obey me? Like whenever you came out, when y'all made that promise to Joshua, because he was still alive then. Remember that? How about you just obey me? But even though he's trying, God, let's say, God is still merciful, and he's doing what he's asked. So then we start into chapter 7. Gideon's 300 men chosen. And this is this is the other part that we know pretty well. Then Jeroboam, which is Gideon, because they told him, they changed his name that day. Those people did. And the Baal that's at the end is Baal. Let Baal deal with him. That's what it was changed to. They didn't see him as Gideon anymore. They were like, yeah, that's the guy that Baal's going to deal with. But you know what's awesome about that is, as you study and read, Baal looked like a fool more and more because did he destroy him? He couldn't touch him. So now he's carrying around the moniker that has let Baal do it. And what? Baal's not doing a thing. So God's getting the glory even out of that. They thought that they were naming him just as they called us, what at Antioch, called us Christians. As a negative thing, well, that's not a negative thing. That's a positive thing. It's a follower of Christ. So it says, Then and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, 
and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, now the Lord speaking to him, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands. For Israel will become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now therefore come proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remain. Does he not know us? He says, if I do that, you're going to be prideful. What I'm trying to do right now is you apostatized. You were in bondage for seven years. You cried out. I'm trying to deliver you. So even that's where we go back and say he even knows where we're going to make a mistake. He has factored my ignorance and my stupidity into this whole thing, into my eternal salvation on the other side. He's saying, I've got to do this because I know you well enough that if I don't do this, you're going to fail. You're going to be right back in bondage. I'm trying to deliver you. How amazing is that? That's the merciful God we serve is even in the work that he's doing. He's making sure that he doesn't lead you. That's why it says God never tempts a man. How do we know that? This is one of the ways. God is not going to place the Israelites in a place where they're going to boast in themselves. That's merciful. I'm glad I served that God because he knows me well too. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go and he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall go, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps as everyone who kneels to drink. So some dip their hand like a ladle. That's what I think about my, my, my grandpa, my great grandpa, big papa. He had a uh, ladle that was like aluminum and I can still remember going to the faucet and putting water in that ladle and drinking and it hung right there by the sink that was some of the best water you drank out of there I don't it was just in your mind but it still was and then the others knelt down which I could not do for various reasons there's no way I could kneel down beside a water hole and bend over like an animal and drink out of it some of them did that. They must have been in wonderful condition. I could not even think about doing that. I would have been one of those. So I would have had to go fight, I suppose, because I would have scooped it up and drank it out of my hand. So I'm just going to say to myself as I was studying this, these probably wasn't the, in the best shape, fellas, because the best shape people probably physically, whatever, they've been over and drank out of the water. That's how Brother Matt's mind sees it. So I think he's even he's even getting of the people who are going to do this. They're probably not the best suited because his whole point is what is to show them that he can do it through his might, not your own. Guys, when we start doing this in our own might, we are we're in a bad place. We're in a very bad place. So I'm going to go down to verse eight. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So he started out with tens of thousands of men, and now he's got 300. That's an amazing feat. All right, so in verse 9, Now the same night it came about, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I, am, I have given it into your hands. This is the time to obey. But this is the same God that just told him, hey, I've got to do it this way because if I don't, you're too prideful. What's the next thing that he tells him? Has God ever given you an option? I don't know, but he surely just gives him one. What's what he tells Gideon. So he first in nine, he says, now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given, into your, given it into your hands. In other words, if you go right now, you're going to defeat them. Y'all, that's by faith you obey. But... It's a but in 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the armory that was in the camp. That's mercy. God told him, if you go right now, this is one of the things. This is something that I gleaned from that is this is. They tell you that if you don't trust God, you don't trust everything God does every single time, then you have no faith. That's, that's not the reality that we see right here. That's foolishness. That's a foolish thought of a person who thinks they're perfect. This individual right here, God told him, you will overcome this. Every one of us are going through some horrible things in our life. It's just a reality. Whatever it might be, 
And we all know that the word of God says what? You're more than an overcomer. Have peace because I've overcome the world. We could go down the line, could we not? But still yet, we're just like this. But if you're afraid, but if you're afraid, keep on praying and go talk to so-and-so or I'll send you a sign or I'll comfort you. He's a comforting God. He knew that this man was a coward. He knew that this man was scared. Who would not be scared? I would be scared. He's not a mighty warrior. So he says, but if you're scared, because I understand that because I'm God and I know, go down and listen. Go down and listen. And once you hear what you hear, you're going to be strengthened. I pray that that's how you feel when you wake up on a Sunday and you don't want to come to church or you don't feel like it. That when you come here, you hear something that strengthens you. That tonight, if you didn't feel like coming here tonight, that God speaks to you and you're comforted and you're strengthened. That's what he's saying. That's how it applies to you and I even now. Do I feel like being here every day? Most certainly not. But I pray, I really do pray that when you show up, that you're strengthened. Because that's what he's saying right there. Your resolve is strengthened. Your understanding of the word of God is strengthened. Your desire to come back again is strengthened. That's what I'm that's what I'm gleaning from this as I read it, as it applies to this century that we're in and the local assembly. I think that's an amazing parallel that God has in his word from thousands of years ago. It sounds a lot like God's a personal God. And he understands that we are a whole lot like Gideon. (laughs) We want to be a Paul or a Joshua Mm. or a Moses. We're a Gideon who Mark 9 and 24, I believe, but help my unbelief. Amen. So that's, that's to me, God, he's saying, look, here's your quote unquote options. Go now. It's given to you. But I also know you, Gideon. Yeah. So I'm going to comfort you yet again. Yeah. I'm going to give you another fleece, if you will. Yeah. Because all the while, Gideon's doing what God's telling him to do. But he's making sure about it all the way, right? Yeah. But hey. Yes. That's me. God said you're going to overcome this. That's cool. But, but what about this? Yeah. What about I need that? some reassurance. Yes. And and he reassures us all the way. Yeah. And sometimes that reassurance comes through his word. Sometimes it comes through prayer. But sometimes it comes through us. We are the body of Christ. Our words are reassuring to one another. When someone speaks positive and reassuring words to me, it uplifts me. When they don't, it does the opposite. Because that's just, unfortunately, we are we are, our affections are a part of who we are. God made us to feel. So then it goes on to say, now the Midianites, so he went with his, he went in verse 12, now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sands of the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God gave Midian and all the camp into his hands. So the Lord used, he prophesied what's going to happen through a, a heathen. The people who are set against God's people, he's just put that word in his mouth. Do you think that's what he wanted to say? He didn't want to he didn't want to say that, but that's a reality that he knew. So Yeah, that's yeah. Reality. It's a reality check because it's not like Gideon is a great warrior. Matter of fact, this is going to be his first time that he's ever done anything for them. So then in fifteen, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. Wow. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. That's what it took. God God gives us the things we need at times, guys, and I'm so thankful for that. I don't always have to have that level of reassurance. I don't always have to have a word from someone else that God said, but isn't it? Isn't it comforting when you do? Like when you get a confirmation or you get something else, you know you know for sure, there's no doubt in your mind, this is God and this is what God wants. That's what we all want. And if you ask in the right way, if your heart is right before God, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We see that. So then in verse 19, we see the confusion of the enemy. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, so he's divided them up now into groups, three groups of 100. They each have a pot 
They each have a torch. Okay. So this is what he said. He says, so Gideon and 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, who did? The Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled. He had them kill one another. The Lord set the sword of them against one another, and they destroyed each other. How, how amazing is that? With, they fought themselves. Um, which, like I say, that's quite amazing. So we go into 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. So they were about as creative with names as a child naming their pet dog dog. <laughs> but those things stood for a long time as a sign against them. They were killed here. This is the wine press of, this is the, yes, of. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. So beginning in eight. So now we'll go back. Israel was oppressed. Gideon was visited. He asked for signs. He got them. The Lord has been so gracious to this man multiple times. When he's asked for it, he's given him reassurance. He's given him exactly what he needed. How many times has God done that for you? He's done that for me multiple times. And that's the great part is because he did it last time, I know for a fact he will do it again. That is the, that is the awesome part. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know we've heard that forever, but until the day you die, no, wait, until forever. He's always God. Today, a kid said something about, it was very a negative thing about, well, what if somebody, what about when someone uses the name of God's, God's name in vain? I said, it doesn't diminish or change God one bit. It doesn't take away from his glory. It's ignorant and it's foolish, but it doesn't diminish who he is. Uh, they didn't like that, but that's okay. They don't love the Lord either. Not yet. But that's the great part. Can they one day love the Lord? Yes. There's. It's not over yet. It's not over for that child. So we got Zeba and Zalmunna routed. So these are the kings. Of, these two are the kings of Midian. Okay, Midian are the Canaanites. This is who they're trying to conquer and overthrow. So they they the these two men were camped against them, right? And now they've watched all their men kill each other. So they're running as far and as fast as they can. Now, this is where Gideon, he kind of gets, he kind of starts going the wrong way. Says, then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grape of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? God gave the leaders of Midian, Orb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. That is wise. So basically what he said, they were fighting. Everybody's fighting, guys. That's one of the things. If you look at this, there's fighting all over because they didn't drive them out. So they're not the only ones fighting. He just happens to be the judge at the time. And all of these different factions are fighting against one another. These individuals at Ephraim, they did kill the two kings, right? We just read that, and they brought the heads to him. So they said, well, why didn't you call us down to the battle so that we could help? They're pretty angry with him. And he says, wait a minute. Did you not kill them? And have you noticed that I haven't, I'm still in pursuit of mine? Yeah. It's kind of clever, is it not? So he kind of set them at ease right there. He said, hey, hey, don't be mad. Look, we knew y'all could handle what you were, but guess what? We didn't handle our own, but we're going to handle it. We're on our way. So then in four, then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary. And I am <clears throat> pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The leaders of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? 
Gideon said, all right, when the Lord has given them into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men saying, when I return safely, I will tear down your tower. Uh, that's kind of violent. <laughs> and here's the thing. He didn't lie. That's one thing we can say about this gentleman. He did not lie. He was true to his word. So now they begin to pursue them and they continue to pursue them. And eventually they cut them off. Right. He's got 300 men. They're going, going, going. They finally route around. They cut them off and they capture these two kings. OK. So then we're going to find. Oh. And we're going to go to. Verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. Now, he's a pretty inquisitive guy. He's pretty smart. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and the elders, 77 men. This is what we would call in the criminal justice thing premeditated. This is premeditated. He kidnapped the kid and asked the kid for the men who ran the town because he doesn't just want to flog anybody, guys. He's going to get who's important. He's trying to make a point. He came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of them already in your hand, that we should give bread to the men who are weary? He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He tore down the tower and killed the men of the city. It's not a very nice thing to do. I'm just being honest. Like that, Did God tell him to do that? Up to this point, he's done pretty much what the Lord said. God did not tell that man to do that. He is tarnishing what he's done that's good. It's going the other direction. Even what's good is now going the other direction. The Lord didn't tell him to exact revenge on anybody. The Lord didn't tell him there was no need for that at all. So even in his good, it's kind of like with Samson. He killed a bunch of Philistines and he did a bunch of stuff, but he went the wrong way. And even in the way that he ended his life was in mass murder and his own death. Not the best way to, to do things. All for the glory of God, of course, but still could have been could have been much better. Now Zeba and Zulmana were in Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for the fallen were 120 swordsmen. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in the tents on the east of, and attacked the camp, and when the camp was unsuspecting. When they fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings. So that's, that's the backstory he, when he finally got them. You see how many men were still left, though? Y'all, there's a lot of people fighting in this time. This is able-bodied men who are able to fight. 120,000 men. And it says they, they pursued them and, and they, they killed those men too. So then, in 18, <clears throat> sorry. It says in 18, then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were those who you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had left them alive, I would not have killed you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then they said, rise up yourself and fall on us, for as a man, so is his strength. They're taunting him. It's like, be a man. If you want us to die, don't send your son to do it. Do it yourself. So Gideon arose and killed them and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks. So he's now, he's got them, and he didn't have to kill them, but he did, which God had already told him to utterly destroy all of them. This should have already been done long ago, guys. Let's be honest. But now he wants his son to. His son can't. So those men, I'm just assuming this is kind of like Stephen. Stephen had the opportunity where maybe he could have right it a little bit, but instead he just throws it right back at them. This is who you, you, you just killed your savior. They're like, if you're, if you're really a man, why don't you just kill us yourself? Why are you sending somebody else to kill us? Be a man. Such a man lives as such a man. It's kind of a bold statement to make at that time. So then we say, then the men of Israel in 22 said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. 
Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment. Now remember, he's asked for one earring. I don't know how many people there were at this time, but he wants a single earring from each individual. That This is the spoils that they took from these quarter of a million plus people they've killed. They stripped their bodies of everything. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment. Every one of them threw an earring there from the spoil, one earring. Okay. So either these earrings were extremely heavy or there was a whole, whole bunch of them. Says the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's 71 pounds. 71 pounds of gold is what they cast onto there. Today's, today's value, $1.5 million worth of gold. That's what they just threw. That's just one from each person. Now, they could have been very heavy, but even if they weighed a pound apiece, we're talking about a lot. An uh, earring weighs grams, not even ounces, but grams. Okay. So then he says the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside That's beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and their necks. He got all that too, mind you. Not only did he get all that gold, but he got all that other stuff too. Because why? He, the, to the victor goes the what? The spoils. That's just the reality of it. Who writes history? The victor. This, this is how we see it. All right, so then in 27, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in this, his city. So he takes 71 pounds of gold. An ephod is what a, what a uh, prophet wore, uh, not a prophet, a priest. A priest wore an ephod. That was their garment. So he makes a golden one out of 71 pounds of gold. Can you imagine? So it says, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in this in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Now they're doing with a golden calf. They are, and I say this because I'm ignorant myself. But why do we make the same mistakes over and over? Because we're sinners. Because we were born into sin. These He did the same exact thing. This is the reason that we can go all the way back to Moses' death. We've discussed this many times. There's a reason that Moses was buried and no one knew where he was because they'd have done this very thing thing because God knows how we are. But so and then we'll in verse 28, we're at the end. So in verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the lamb was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. What did we see about Deborah? 40 years of peace. 40 years of ease, as it would say here. So now, 40 years of time that there's nothing. But listen, here's a, we've talked about this many times at this church over the years I've even been here. Complacency is the worst thing. Now, complacency as defined, because we've heard that a lot at work, unfortunately, about being complacent. The real true complacency is... I am, it, it's, a, it's prideful. I cannot see my flaws. A complacent person cannot see their own flaws. And it is destructive because you can't see the problem. I'm complacent in my walk with God because I believe that I have everything that I need. I'm complacent in the way that I do my job because I refuse to take anybody else's advice. That's true complacency. It's a detriment to the one who is complacent and a detriment to those that they serve. It's the same way in the church. If you cannot be taught anymore, something's wrong with you. You must be able to be taught. You must be able to be corrected. If you're not, something is wrong with you, and that is your heart before God. You have to be subject to more than just the Lord. I have got to be subject to the administration that's over me. Regardless if I think that the things they're saying are rational or wise, that's irregardless. Because all of those things that they ask me to do, as long as they don't harm me or a child or they're not against the word of God, the word of God says I must do that. Because that is what is right in the eyes of God. So we go back to this. It says, and then Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went out and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were... His direct descendants, for he had many wives. Lord, 
His concubine, who was in Sheshgam, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Anybody know where that's going? You ever seen that name before? You see, this is a lot of name dropping. There's a lot of stuff. Go and study that out. We don't have time tonight. But there's so much in this. We've touched the high points of his life and what his life meant. Everything that happened throughout his life that was meaningful, we have covered it. Then it came, we're going to go down to 33. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. They waited for him to die and they played the harlot. That's what it says. He, they played the harlot again. That it, well, if you look at the image, the image is a golden calf, but I don't know that that's exactly what it is. When I studied it, the imagery that they gave was a, it was a calf, the sin, the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam built the cat, built them at two different places. Supposedly, it's the same image. It's a calf. It's the same exact thing that they made in the wilderness. Yep, when they come off the mountain. It, when you look at it, for some reason, that's always what it is. It, it's a calf. So, yep. Over and over and over. Mm -hmm. So, the, the, if we could, I say, glean from this, let's look at, at the ABCs, as they call it, of the problem. It starts with apostasy. And then it goes to bondage. Then you cry out. Then you're delivered. And then there's a time of ease. But but where does it begin with? It begins with the apostasy. The ease is not the end of this thing. You've got to stay crying out. And you've got to stay in the phase of deliverance. Why? Because a delivered person is a repentant person. That's where we are on this side. A delivered person is a repentant person. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I should not feel condemnation daily in my life if I'm repentant before God. When I sin, it brings about godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow drives me to repentance. And, and at that time, the Word of God says that I am delivered from that sin. It's as cast as far as the east is from the west. So could, could you say that ease or complacency is the headwaters of apostasy? Most certainly. It's the beginning of it. It's, it's, it's akin to backsliding. Yeah. Ease is backsliding. Everything is going fine. There's no need for me to pray. I stop reading my Bible as much. I stop seeking the Lord. I do what I want to because that's because everything's easy. It's fine. And I know we always go to Revelation chapter 3, but that's where I find myself every time. You think that you're what? Everything that you have is you're fine. I'm going to actually read it. Revelation chapter 3 because he says he's going to spew you out of his mouth. And there's a reason that he feels that way. But it says, in starting in verse 15, Revelation 3 and 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, this is it, in 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's ease, guys. I don't need anything. The Lord provides for all my needs. Yes, he does. And I understand that. Monetarily, your job, your food, and all those things. But when do you find yourself crying out to the Lord the most? When times are really bad. Most people don't praise God in the awesome parts. And they don't praise him through the storm either, which is a whole other problem. All they do is cry out to him. But there's praise even in that. Especially if what he's doing is doing what? If you're a son, what does he do to you? He chastens you. Chastening is an awesome thing because that lets you know that you're actually his child. So when they're crying out, they're being chastened during all this time, and then he finally delivers them, then they get into the complacency. We just have to stay out of that spiral because you notice it's a spiral. It starts and it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's the scary part. So I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you again for, for this night. I thank you for a people who are willing to come and hear your word, God. I pray that someone was strengthened in their faith, Lord, in their spirit, God, that there was something that was revealed 
Father, that someone needed. God, we know that your word does not return void. For those who aren't able to be here who are sick, we pray in Jesus' name that you would be, you would work in their life. God, we know that you have them in your hand. We know that there's a purpose for everything that we go through. God, we just pray that in time they can be back here to, to worship with us and to gather with us, Father. Thank you, Lord, for this church and thank you for this people. We ask that you would be with us in the coming week and give us the opportunities that we need to show people who you truly are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.